We'll go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles if you have them. The passage is 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be going through 11 through 17. Uh, you know, there are three different kinds of churches typically um, when you look at sort of the vast and broad scope of, of evangelicalism. There are churches that kind of uh, sprout up and they, they sort of pull themselves to the, as far back from culture as they can get. They sort of create a bubble. They don't want to have anything to do with the world. They think that any association that they might have with the world or with the community is somehow condemned by Scripture and somehow wicked. They think that their job as the church is to stay as far back from anything in the world as possible. And that's maybe a kind of a church that you have grown up in or came from. That was the kind of church that I grew up in. They created sort of an empire so that everybody could just come in and operate and live life within this bubble that they created so they didn't have to go out into the big bad world. Uh, Other churches are just the opposite, right? They're aware of not wanting to create this bubble effect. And so what they do is, man, they just immerse themselves into the world to the degree that you look at them and you don't really know what the difference is between the church and the world. I remember I visited a church one time in Phoenix, and they had a big sign right next to the opening, and it had 20 apologies that they felt like they needed to apologize for that the church over the last 50 years, you know, had, had you know, sort of these crimes that the church had committed. And so literally, they just listed 20 things, like right next to the front door, saying like, we apologize for having this kind of behavior. We apologize for for showing these kinds of views. We apologize for, for, for," and it just went down the line. So you're supposed to walk in and go, hey, this is supposed to feel like a safe place because it's not like the church that my grandparents came from, which was just harsh and judgmental. And then there is a, there's a third kind of church, and it's a church that we strive to be, which is what the Bible talks about when it says, be in the world, but not of the world. Okay, and that's the church that we all need to be striving to be. And Peter, what Peter's going to do for us this morning is he provides guidelines for how to live as the church who are exiles in a way that serves God by honoring our neighbors and submitting to the authority that God has placed over us in our communities and in our country. Okay, so the problem lies as we just sort of dive into this, the problem that we're going to see lies in not seeing ourselves as God sees us, okay? Which is that we are his people on a mission to spread his message for his glory and our joy. Now, your identity, my identity, is never in question to God. Think about that for a second. God knows your identity. It's never in question to God. He knows who you are. Right now, wherever you're at, wherever you may feel lost in all these different areas of your life, God's not lost. God knows who you are. The question is, do you know? Do you know whose you are? Do you know that you are God's if you are God's? Because how you answer that will change what you do next. It will change what you do every day because all of you are theologians. Some of, the, some of the comments I got after last week's sermon was, well, Ronnie, you're the theologian. I'm not a theologian. Well, that's just not true because all of us wake up every day thinking a particular thing about God. You live your life in response to who and what you think God is, actually. So in that way, you're all theologians. We're all theologians. And so what Peter is going to instruct his readers today is in how they should live, okay? And this is what it is. It's living as honorable servants of the Lord in a society that doesn't honor Christ as Lord. 
And our example for that, the example that we want to keep hitting back on is none other than Jesus, who lived, by the way, in an incredibly politically charged society for his time. And yet, he remained unstained by the world, while still finding favor with them and submitting to earthly authorities placed over him. And it just seems so simple, doesn't it? Right? When you think about it on that level. Let's hear what Peter has to say about our place in the world, living as honorable servants of the Lord in a society that does not honor Christ. And we're going to pick up in verse 11, chapter 2. And this is Peter writing, and he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then 13, he says this, listen, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then he says, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And that's as far as we're going to go today. So Peter really gives us three instructions. He says, abstain from the flesh. He says, conduct yourself honorably And he says we need to submit to the authority that God has placed over us. But he starts right here using this particular phrase. He says, beloved. He wants these people to remember who they are, not just to him, but in the eyes of God. He wants them to understand that there is a special level of affection that they have as God's beloved. Matthew 3 and 17, um, Jesus, remember, when he, uh, God, when he was talking to Jesus, he, he made this statement a couple of different times. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So we understand that, again, Peter goes back and he keeps continuously going back to reminding this people that they are loved. And not just loved, but they are beloved by God. They have a special place of affection by God, for them, and everything that they're going through. And again, he brings us back by saying, sojourners in in exiles. He's saying, this is who you are. You're in a place. It's not your homeland. It's not your hometown. He brings us back to what he called them in the first verse when he said, you're elect exiles. And so what he's saying is, hey, what I'm about to tell you is because your lives need to be a demonstration of this particular new citizenship that you have. Although you're living in a foreign land, you actually have citizenship in a new place, on a, on a new, on a, in a new heaven, in a new earth that isn't yet revealed, but God will reveal at some point. And what's important for us with that is that we don't take our cues then from what is acceptable in the culture because we are part of a new culture. And that's really what he's driving at as he starts here with this language that sounds a little similar to where we've come from about abstaining from the flesh. How many of you, uh, use, how many of you guys use GPS on, on your phones these days? Yeah, like everybody, right? Uh, GPS is out of control right now. Let me just throw it out there. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's like a literal crystal ball now, right? Like you're just driving and all of a sudden it's like, you know, just beware because 10 miles up the road there's like an accident, 
you know? Beware, 10 miles up the road, there's a guy pulled off by the side of the road, and he's just like reading a book. Like, I don't know how they know all that right now. But um, it's amazing that it tells me which roads to avoid because of detours and accidents and, you know, guys just like hanging out, having picnics by the side of the road. I don't know how they know all that. Um, Now, I can ignore the voice on my phone, and I know what you ladies are thinking. You're a dude, so you probably ignore it all the time. But here's what's interesting is I can't can't avoid what, what it's telling me is lying ahead. Right? Like, like it's, it's true. It, you, know, you know, the GPS doesn't have it out for me, right? It's not trying to get back at me because I haven't been using it enough lately, right? It's just giving me the fact. When Peter says abstain, when he uses that word, that really fun, lovely word, abstain, he's saying keep away from ambitions that war against your soul. And what do we know about war? Well, we know that it's conflict, right? War is conflict. And so to not abstain from fleshly passions, and again, this is not the first time Peter's brought this to our attention, but to not abstain from fleshly passions is to willingly allow your soul to be warred against. That's what he's saying right here. And you know what's interesting is that even today, all of us, some of us, most of us, whatever category we want to fit into that, man, we're, we're, we're sitting in a warehouse that is filled with warring souls, aren't we? Some of us have souls that are being warred against, because of this issue that we have and this, this battle that we fight with abstaining from the flesh. And so we are people who have warring souls. And what Peter is calling his people to is worshipful souls ultimately. And you know how he does it? He's calling for rebellion. I mean, Peter just gets hardcore with some of these things. Peter gets hardcore, man. He says, what I'm calling for here is rebellion, all-out assault against the flesh. Rebellion against the flesh. The battle is to abstain. That's the battle that we're going to engage in as we abstain. But the war comes when we don't abstain. Galatians 5.17 says this, listen, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Romans 13.14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then in Romans 12, Paul says again, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul is calling for abstinence against the passions of the flesh. He's calling for a rebellion against our flesh. I don't know if you guys are Star Wars geeks out there, but I caught the new, you know, trailer number 64 for the new Star Wars movie that's coming out in December, Rogue One. And, uh, oh, no, man, we don't clap for that stuff here. Um, but she, there was a line in it. There was a new line in it. I'm totally kidding, but no, we don't. Um, but there was a line in it where she said this, and I love this. She goes, every rebellion is built on hope. So Peter is calling us to rebel against things that the world, that the culture is not rebelling against. And it's a battle. And if we don't engage in the battle, it means that what that's going to turn into is an all-out war against our flesh. But, again, we're not people without hope, are we? And what the other thing is here, too, is, is we don't want to read passions of the flesh as being just sexual, okay? 
Because I think, I think that's automatically where we go when we, when we read this and we see this. It's all passions. It's all desires. It's all ambitions. I love the word ambitions. Think ambitions. It's all ambitions that seek to win over and to dominate and replace your passion, desire, and ambition for God. So that's the question you have to ask right now as we're in this particular uh, portion of the passages. What are those ambitions in your life? What's, what springs to mind when you think about fleshly ambitions? Maybe they're actually things that you've tried to moderate, right? But what's interesting is that Peter doesn't say, you know, I just want you to back off a little from those things. He's not. The word abstain there means to keep away from, to run the other way. And that's what's interesting is that Peter doesn't really leave us a lot of margin there or moderation there. He says, keep away from passions of the flesh. I mean, this is just not the same thing as trying to eat less carbs and introduce more protein and fiber into your diet. That's not what he's saying right here, right? He's saying, abstain, keep away. And you know what? That's a call for the church. The church needs to be on a rampage against fleshly ambitions that create war and disharmony against our souls. And we got to be together in that. John Owen wrote this really fun book years ago called The Mortification of Sin. And uh, he made this comment. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. I mean, that's pretty, pretty profound right there. So Peter says, abstain from the flesh. And then he gets into verse 12 and he says, hey, I want to talk about your conduct. I want to talk the way it is that you conduct yourselves and you present yourselves to the culture, to the society, to the neighborhood, to the community that you're living in here in verse 12. And he says this, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Christians in Peter's time were charged with, with disrupting society a little bit, okay? Because again, it, it looks like something when you're consciously rebelling against the flesh. You know, so there were things like they were there a little disloyalty to the emperor at times, right? When the emperor was, was calling them to do things that went against what God commanded. They were promoting unlawful customs. That, that's, what the, that's what the government or the rules of the land would be charging against them. They were speaking out against false gods, right? So were there, there, were, there were things here that Christians were engaged in of which the culture would have said, you guys are evildoers, you guys are rebel rousers. And Peter's saying, you know, this is what I want you to do in that, is to let your good deeds be visible to the culture in a way that shows honor and respect. Because, again, you're not of the world, but you are in the world. And there's a way for us to conduct ourselves that shows visibly that the love of Christ has transformed us, okay? And notice he says this. This is what's really interesting, right, when you go to 12. Notice he says, among the Gentiles. Look at that. Look down at that line right now. He says, among the Gentiles. It's interesting that Peter expects his readers to be engaged with their communities. Because many times, the church's way of living honorably among unbelievers is to get as far away as possible from them. That's how we live honorably among unbelievers. But we don't get that from Scripture. We don't get it from Jesus either. We need to be around unbelievers to actually Pra wait for it, to actually practice honorable conduct around them. 
I mean, I'm not trying to be thick here, right? But that's what he says. Peter doesn't say, try not to be around Gentiles, but if you do, just play it cool until they go away. Right? That's not what he says. He commands them to be as honorable as they are living among those who don't know the Lord and expect that they won't speak well of you all the time and they will make judgments. Paul said this, something really similar to the Philippians when he said, man, I want you to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. How do we do that if we have distanced ourselves? How do we do that if we create churches that want to stand on a hill isolated and alone from the big bad world? We don't. We don't. So, unlike the message I got from some of the churches I grew up in, we were to engage with unbelievers, we're to act honorably, we're expected to be criticized at times, but we are to act in such a way that they may observe how we live and someday glorify God. And what this does, it calls us back to mission, doesn't it? That's really what Peter's driving at. It's like you guys are in a place, you're in a foreign land, you're exiles, but you're still on mission. So let your conduct be honorable because God uses that to draw people to the day that he might visit them and reveal himself to them. That's honorable conduct. Well, what is, what is dishonorable conduct? I, I think we should, we should chat about that for at least a second here. And dishonorable conduct for us, and, and none of us are strangers to this, but it would be more adversarial conduct. It would be judgmental attitudes to those outside the church. With the expectation, listen to me really carefully, with the expectation that those who don't love Jesus should live like they do. Okay? And what this does for us, what this does for our witness, what this does for us as the church that needs to be proclaiming the grace and mercy of Christ is it sets up a false dichotomy where unbelievers think all we want from them is to talk and act like us instead of being transformed like us. So when we seek transformation, what that does is it allows us to be careful in our conduct so as to not promote religion and not promote hypocrisy and not promote something that's anti the gospel, which says, no, 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 no. God has to transform your heart so that your actions follow. And until that happens, we're going to show you kindness and grace so that the Lord can use us and use our conduct in that process. So Peter's calling for something both counter to the world, okay, and also counter to religious hypocrisy. Counter to the world because you don't engage in their passions. You don't pursue those things. You abstain from those things. But counter to religious hypocrisy because your conduct in the world is so honorable that your transformed life will be the occasion for them to glorify God on the day God makes himself known to them. Our job is to conduct ourselves like those who love Jesus. Not like those who are angry with those who don't. I mean, don't ever forget that Jesus treated unbelievers with honor and respect. The ones he had harsh words for were religious hypocrites. People hated by the world for all the right reasons. I mean, is that, is that us? 
sometimes. And the church has to own that. We have to own that. Slandered by the world because our actions don't match our love for our Savior. It happens because we're sinners. But to be aware of that in the broader context of what it means to be the church means that we are going to extend grace and mercy through honorable conduct so that God can use that as the means to draw people in. So what does honorable conduct look like? What does that mean? He says honorable conduct. What does that mean? Well, he's really just talking about the fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about something revolutionary and rebellious that goes against the flesh. He's saying, look, be patient when others are angry. Love when others are hateful. Use self-control when others are going to be indulgent. Be kind when others are mean-spirited. Be gentle when others are harsh. Because God uses those good works as the means to work salvation in the hearts of those who otherwise hate Him and don't know Him. And part of this honorable conduct, it's also submitting to the authorities and institutions that God has placed over us. Interesting time for us to be going through these passages right now. All right, let's just be honest. Verses 13 and 14, this is what he says, talking about the way that we are called as the church, as believers, to submit to authority that God has placed over us. He says this in 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or the president as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So Christians are called to submit to those God has placed over us. Since God has established these institutions and authorities, since we believe that he is the one that has his hand and controlling who gets into these uh, positions, it pleases God when we actually submit to those people. Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is, listen to what it says, For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That's pretty clear. That's pretty clear. So, my job is not to tell you who to vote for. That's not how we roll here. My job is to remind you that first and foremost, you have an everlasting king on an everlasting throne with no term limits who is going to keep every promise he's ever made to you. There it is right there. That's primary for us. And because of that, because of that truth and that good news, for his sake, you, I, we can submit to institutions and presidents and local law officials that God has put in place to keep order in society, like Peter mentions here in verse 14. You can honor those men and women that God has put in those places. You can even honor those in power you disagree with because Jesus is your king. Now, you know, I don't know if you guys have been pulled over on Claremont like I have 40 or 50 times when that speed limit goes from like 50 down to like five miles an hour and like you've missed that every single time. Um, you know, it's just crazy. It's crazy. 
I've been pulled over, I think, three or four times for that, and they let me go every time. I don't know why they let me go. I don't tell them who I am here or anything, you know. I'm just like, all right, write my ticket. No, we're going to let you go. But just remember to literally slam on your brakes and come to a skidding stop because this thing goes from 80 to like three, you know, overnight. I don't know. Um, I'm glad you guys all know what I'm talking about. Um, It's hard in the moment, all right. I'm trying to make a larger point here. Uh, boys and girls, but we should be grateful to God that he's given us governing authorities in our town that extend his common grace, which is what that is, and keep a level of moral standards in place, all right? That's why I I think it's a good thing for us to take the time and to vote for for local issues and for local uh, officials. Let's get involved in that way in our communities, recognizing that God is going to put these people in place to set up and to maintain a level of good uh, morality and authority that is in uh, common with his grace. Um, Now, listen, Christians are subject to human institutions as long as what we're commanded to do doesn't go against what God has commanded. So we obey except when commanded to sin. And what he says here is he says this is the will of God. And we know in 1 Thessalonians that the will of God ultimately for our lives is our sanctification. So what Peter's driving at here is God's will is this. Abstain from passions, all right? Conduct yourself honorably. Submit to authority because this is how God sanctifies you. So in your speech, in your actions, your thoughts, your behaviors, here's the question. Is your conduct and submission a testimony to the freedom you have because Jesus is your new king? Is it in line with that? So to the degree that we honor those placed in authority over us, whether we agree with them or not, will be how we silence foolish people who follow the passions of their ignorance and slander the name of Christ. The problem is this, is that when people slander you because of your foolishness or your dishonorable conduct, what happens is is that they're ultimately slandering God. So what we want to do is remove every opportunity for people to be able to do that. Because it's not necessarily our reputation that we're thinking of. Ultimately, what we're thinking of is God's glory. God will be glorified, but he also uses us as representatives of that glory. And so Peter here is, he's kind of charging us with how to live because of that. And he says, remember, he says, remember that we are free. In verse 18, he says, live as people who are free. We have a freedom that no earthly ruler can take from us. That's what we have. We've been freed by the gospel. We have a king named Jesus who reigns forever in our hearts and forever in heaven. And again, we don't want to use that as a cover-up. It says we don't want to use that to trick or manipulate or live dishonorably because our freedom is not a license to sin, but our freedom in Christ is an opportunity and a license to serve like Christ. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So that's the mandate. That's what Peter's laying out. And he kind of just wraps it up here at the end in verse 17 by telling us how God wants us to live in the world, by telling us what an honorable life looks like. He says, Honor everyone, 
Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. So honor everyone. He says, hey, we're talking about mankind here. We're talking about men and women. Be courteous, be respectful, show honor. Display that honorable conduct. And he says, love the brotherhood. Well, he's talking about the church when he talks about the brotherhood. So it goes a little bit further. He's not just saying honor your brothers and sisters in Christ. He's saying love them. Love the brotherhood. Have a strong, have a deep, abiding love and affection for your brothers and sisters as those who have been saved, just like you have. And then he says this, and this is the highest place he goes. He says, fear God. He doesn't say honor God. He doesn't say love God. He says fear God, and fear includes honor and love, but it also includes this reverence and this awe that we are to have for God and really nobody else. We're taught to fear God, not fear men. And then he finishes with saying honor the emperor. So there's two things that he puts on the level of honor, and that's that's the, the community that we live in, the people, our neighbors, our town, our country. And then he says, honor the emperor. He puts, that, he puts this man or this woman on the same level as everyone. So our obligations are, in this order, to fear God first, to love the church, while still res- showing respect to all men, including God, who has placed the people in authority that are over us that we need to submit to. So... Don't miss the opportunity we have in this to be so unlike the world that the world wants to be part of the new world God has drafted us into. I mean, you see what Peter's trying to say here? When the world beholds a community so unlike their own, they're drawn to why that is and how that's possible. That's why we behave and engage in our communities the way Jesus did, which is that we're in there, but we're not going after the same things that they go after. And again, this is in no way calling Christians to be ineffective doormats. He doesn't say that anywhere here. He's calling for fighters. He's calling for fighters who rebel against what the world is giving into and to give into what the world fights against. But you know what it takes to do that? You know what it takes to do that? It takes faith to do that. Because faith means that you'll be living your life as someone, listen, who has a fixed destiny. Because those of us who are in Christ have a fixed destiny, and that's hard. As the British would say, that's bloody hard. All right? You know why? Because that fixed destiny is not fully realized yet. The world, on the other hand, is trying to fix their destiny, which is why they can't live a life of faith. So living as honorable servants of the Lord in a land that doesn't honor Christ as Lord requires faith. And if we believe God, listen, we will make decisions in faith for what we can't see. Right? Rather than make decisions in fear, for what we only think we can see. That's what the world does. When our conduct is rooted in faith, it's honorable. 
It becomes honorable. Remember the story of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the, in the, in the, the Old Testament book of Daniel. These were four men when Babylon invaded Israel, pulled them into exile, took over the country. They pulled some of the brightest men from the ranks of Israel and started training them to put them in positions of governmental leadership in Babylon. And they grabbed these four dudes. And man, these were people right off the bat that started their training. And they realized that they were being asked to do things that went against their conscience. And the first thing was they were being asked to eat food that, that they were called uh, in, in their practices as, as a nation of God to not eat. So they said, hey, is it okay that we abstain from this food? So they asked. They conducted themselves honorably, and they said, is it okay if we do this? And it turns out that they gained much favor in the ranks and in the leaders who were teaching and training them to where God said, yeah, it's okay. You don't have to eat this food. We'll let you stick with some of the customs of the God that you follow. And he gave them favor. So, favor. so their conduct, their honorable conduct, and their willingness to abstain from things that would have been delicious. They were being given the king's food. And they said, no, we got to go back to water and vegetables for this. we got to do a little kale and quinoa, right? That's what they were, at, that's what they were advocating. Because they said, you know what? It's not going to push against our conscience, and it's going to help us. And so they did that, and they found favor. And then you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? When the king eventually creates an idol for the entire nation to bow down to. And at some point, when the music started, everybody's supposed to drop to their knees and bow down and worship the graven image. The music starts, everybody drops, but not our boys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They don't, they don't bow. They don't bow down. That was an act of faith. That was an act of faith for sojourners and exiles that were living and functioning in a land that God had placed them in, but doing it as people who were still serving God. Now remember, these were government leaders. You think they may have had a little powwow before the ceremony? You know, um, guys, just because we bow with our knees doesn't mean we're like bowing with our hearts. I mean, do you think there could have been a little ra rationalization there? Do you think they may have said, um, you know, man, if we don't bow, I mean, we'll be losing our influence with these positions and platforms that God's given us. All right, I know what you're thinking. Right? Don't, don't read this. Don't read this about being just about the election. That's not where I'm trying to go here right now. I want you to apply it to your life in all areas of your life where God has called you to live as his servants, right? This has far greater implications. So we don't want to rationalize this for being just in this particular time with this particular group of people and then try to just move this over into the election. That's not what we're talking about at all. I want you to apply this to your life in the day-to-day. -day. In that moment, listen to what they were doing. In that moment when they decided not to bow, this is what was going on with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were abstaining from the flesh of personal gain. Because it was in their best interest to bow, brother. They were abstaining from the flesh of personal comfort, of trying to figure out what God might do if they didn't bow. God used their faithfulness as a testimony to a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. And what happened? I mean, I can't read the whole story, but they, were, they ended up being saved from the fire and Nebuchadnezzar ended up glorifying God because of their faith, 
because of their refusal to bow to his pagan god. It's just what Peter's saying here. The king saw their good deeds, saw that they trusted God, and he gave God glory. He said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So faith in God is fear of God, not fear of man, which we are told is the beginning of wisdom. So God is calling us to faith when he says, conduct yourselves honestly and abstain from the flesh. And the final thing as we close is he's calling us to humility. He's calling us to faith. He's calling us to humility because abstaining from the flesh, having honorable conduct, submitting to authority and living as servants are all acts of humility. Those are the marching orders Peter gives to a suffering people. And the church just doesn't like this. We just don't like this. Because humility always feels like an ineffective tool, doesn't it? But humility is an act of faith. It's an act of rebellion. If believing there's a greater comfort in abstaining than indulging, that's humility. It's believing there's better consequences when my conduct around unbelievers is honorable. That's humility. It's believing that being subject to rulers I don't agree with speaks well of my Savior, who is my ultimate authority. That's humility. That's what we have to humble ourselves under. It's living out our sanctification, which is being conformed into a humble and faithful servant like Jesus. It's being like Jesus. Jesus the humble and faithful servant. Jesus, who said, Father, will you remove this cup of suffering from me? Do I have to do this? Do I have to go to the cross? That was an act of obedience and faith and humility from Jesus. The cup could have been removed, but we would have had to have drank the cup of God's wrath. We would have. So Jesus accomplished the will of God by being obedient and faithful and humble before God. That was the life of Jesus. It was a life of faith and humility that led to the cross. And the cross is where our life begins. Let's live as people who honor God by living in light of the future home that we have in Him. It says in Hebrews of all the great patriarchs of the faith who went through everything that God had them go through and lived these lives that if you go back and you read through the Old Testament, God made these men and these women go through just some incredibly hard things, living as exiles and sojourners in cultures that were clearly against God, just like these people who, who Peter's writing to are living. You know, the, 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 the king that was in reign here during the time of Peter's letter uh, to these churches was a guy named Nero. Peter eventually dies at the hands of Nero. This was a dude that did not like Christians. But this is what Hebrews says about these men as they were living out their faith in a culture that had none. He says, but as it is, they desired a better country a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Peter is saying, live out your identity as a beloved sojourner, precious to God, who is preparing you to come home. Let's pray.
Lord, thanks for preparing us to come home to see you. Thanks for giving us such gracious instruction for how to live in a world that is not living for you, that doesn't know you. Um, and we're humbled when we go through these passages. We've been humbled all the way through First Peter. And it's the kind of humbling that we need. Because to serve you requires faith and it requires humility. And Lord, these aren't things that we just gain once and can walk away from, but we need you to be constantly refilling us with greater faith, greater humility. Lord, we want to be effective witnesses in our communities and in our jobs and in our families around those people who haven't yet submitted their lives to you. We want to be people whose lives speak well of you. Let that be true in our lives, we pray. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, and we all said together, amen.